0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. Tonight we are going to present The Jews in Europe, John D. and the Kabbalah, Part 1. Just as we revisited the Royslin affair to discuss the love affair with the Kabbalah, which the supposed second greatest scholar in Europe had, John D., who was supposedly a great English scholar was just as enamored our purpose here before beginning a presentation of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, or as we like to more appropriately title them the protocols of Satan, is to demonstrate that Kabbalistic thought had permeated Britain just like it had permeated. Germany and that Kabbalistic thought was in a position where it could captivate the minds of many an unsuspecting Englishman right at a time when scientific thought and liberty of conscience were becoming popular ideas in the concurrent wars of religious reformation in Europe. This Kabbalistic thought would lend to the formation of modern Freemasonry and the secret societies of Europe from which all of the subsequent revolutions were launched, which overturned Christian society and resulted in world Jewish supremacy. A child was being born, and Satan could not kill it, so he persecuted and made war against its mother. In the Protocols, the objectives of the Jews and the agenda, which to a large degree has been executed with the help of the Lodges of Freemasonry, come together as one and are fully expressed. To introduce the Kabbalah as a godly authority to otherwise Christian scholars, as an ancient authority to otherwise Christian scholars, is tantamount to giving the Jewish rabbis religious authority over countless Christian minds. This is what was happening in the Freemasonic lodges of Europe throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and it is still ongoing today. Whether or not lower-level Freemasons and its initiates realize this objective. That is because it is done not in the name of religion, although religion plays a role in the Freemasonic mantras and rituals, nor in the name of politics, although the end result is political. Rather, it is done in the name of science and scientific inquiry, in the name of crafts and related ideas." John Dee seems to have done for the Kabbalah in England what Johann Reuchlin had done for the Kabbalah in Germany just a few decades before him. He romanticized and popularized Kabbalistic sorcery and captivated the minds of those who would seek the ancient knowledge that it allegedly possessed. But the rabbis of Judaism were of course its ultimate authorities as they stayed in the shadows. But before proceeding, in all fairness, let it be said that Europe had its share of disputes over the occult so-called sciences long before the introduction of the Kabbalah. For instance, in a defense of medieval astrology as an acceptable Christian science, Albertus Magnus wrote a book called Speculum Astronome, or the Mirror of Astronomy, sometime around 1260 AD. This in part resulted in a convention at the University of Paris where official condemnations were issued against many heresies, including a number of the treatises of Aristotle. But such condemnations had gone back to 1210 AD. So the obscurantism, of, of which Erasmus had complained, had been ongoing for many centuries. In twelve seventy seven, one particular French bishop, Stephen Tempier, had a list of over two hundred propositions or articles that were forbidden to be believed or even to be discussed. The ongoing concern was that much of the Aristotelian knowledge, which was at the time becoming integrated into European universities, represented a challenge to Christianity. Astrology was the subject of many of those condemnations. Tempier allegedly believed that any form of knowledge promising to allow one to predict the future, would negate the concept of the free will of man. However, quite plainly, in our opinion, the Bible condemns such avenues of inquiry anyway. So John D. was a latecomer to astrology and other such so-called sciences. And there was still an ongoing struggle concerning these things. However, the Kabbalah did not appear in publication until the 13th century, and it was probably unknown to at least the vast majority of French academics at that time. The time was not good for anything Jewish in France in the 13th century, as Talmuds were burned after the disputation of Paris in 1240 AD. The Kabbalah was not introduced into Christian circles, until the time of men such as Johann Reuchlin and John Dee. John Dee was a polymath, skilled in Latin and other languages, advanced mathematics and astronomy, but he was also an astrologer, an occult or hermetic philosopher, alchemist and diviner. More significantly, he was an advisory member of the court of Queen Elizabeth I, his constant patron and employer. But real and unbiased information about John Dee is difficult to find. No authoritative biography of his life was published for 300 years after his death. Much of the information which is available is found in the writings of other mystics, or, at the opposite pole, from conspiracy theorists, and it is not always balanced or learned, or even well-cited. However, a seemingly less biased author, one who at least doesn't seem to have an underlying agenda, although she is one who also seems to have been rather altruistic towards John Dee, and therefore, maybe, while she may be relatively free of any underlying agenda, still sought to defend him. She published a biography of his life in 1909. Charlotte Fell Smith was a British historian and the author of the first biography of John Dee, published in 1909, and she was a contributor to the British Dictionary of National Biography. Not much more information than that could be located in time for this program. Her biography of John Dee seems to be well-studied and sincere, even though she readily exposes herself as his supporter and defender in the face of the criticism he had received. Therefore, we shall employ her work with the hope of obtaining a fair picture of a man who, even if his motives were innocent, did something which we believe was actually quite treacherous, by advancing the promotion of Kabbalistic mysteries in England. That is treacherous indeed, because it puts undue power into the hands of the Jewish rabbis, who are esteemed to have the greatest insight into those mysteries and the language which unlocks them. It hands the Jews an authority over so-called science and scientific investigation, which they never warranted. Charlotte Felsmith's biography of John Dee contains nearly 400 pages, therefore we hope to present only those pages necessary to exhibit the proofs of our assertions here, and enough background information to put them into context. We will provide a PDF facsimile of the entire book with these notes when they are published at Christigenia. In part two of this series, we will draw from other sources, including the writings of John D. himself, in order to demonstrate fully his reliance on the Kabbalah for his beliefs about science, astrology, mathematics, and and soothsaying, and everything else that he was participating in, which to Christians should basically be sorcery and rejected. So we will begin with a review of John Dee's early life from chapter one of Charlotte Felsmith's book. It seems remarkable that 300 years should have been allowed to elapse since the death of John D. in December 1608, without producing any life or biography of an individual so conspicuous, so debatable, and so remarkably picturesque. There is perhaps no learned author in history who has been so persistently misjudged, nay, even slandered by his posterity, and not a voice in all the three centuries uplifted even to claim for him a fair hearing. Surely it is time that the cause of all this universal condemnation should be examined in the light of reason and science, and perhaps it will be found to exist mainly in the fact that he was too far advanced in speculative thought for his own age to understand and she makes that claim several times for D. in her book for more than fifty years out of the eighty-one of his life Dee was famous even if suspected and looked askance at as clever beyond human interpretation. Then his queen died, a reference to Elizabeth I. With the narrow-minded Scotsman who succeeded her came a change in the fashion of men's minds, a reference to James I. The reign of the devil and his handmaidens, the witches and possessed persons, was set up in order to be piously overthrown. And the very bigotry of the times gave birth to independent and rational thought to Newton, Bacon, and Locke. And it seems to us that Charlotte Fell Smith, in her altruistic outlook of John Dee, was actually quite naive as to the the nefarious sources... From which he was getting a lot of his information and his teachings. To us, the Kabbalah is a wicked source, and it seems that Charlotte Fell Smith simply did not have that opinion. She mentioned perhaps half a dozen times. She mentioned the word Kabbalistic as an adjective, mostly in reference to John Dee's drawings. And she understood that the drawings were based on the Kabbalah. But she did not mention the fact that any of his writings or any of his theses were based on the Kabbalah. Perhaps she was just ignorant. Perhaps he simply didn't know. We can't tell because we don't know enough about her to make any sort of decision about her at all. She continues but D was already labeled once and for all. Every succeeding writer who has touched upon his career has followed the leaders blindly and has only cast another and yet another stone to the heap of obloquy piled upon his name. The fascination of his psychic projections has always led the critic to ignore his more solid achievements in the realms of history and science, while at the same time, these are only cited to be loudly condemned. The learned Dr. Merrick Kossaban, who 50 years after Dee's death edited his Book of Mysteries, the absorbing recital of four out of the six or seven years of his crystal-gazing, and we'll get into that a little more further on, was perhaps the fairest critic he yet has had. Although he calls these spiritual revelations a sad record and a work of darkness, he confesses that he himself, the other learned and holy men, including an archbishop in the editing process, I believe, read it with avidity to the end and were eager to see it printed. He felt certain, as he remarks in his preface, that men's curiosity would lead them to devour what seems to him not paralleled in that kind by any book that has been set out in any age to read. And yet on no account was he publishing it to satisfy curiosity, but only to do good and promote religion. For D, he is persuaded... Was a true, sincere Christian. His relation made the most, made in the most absolute good faith. Although undoubtedly he was imposed upon and deluded by the evil spirits whom he sometimes mistook for good ones. And of course, that is Casaubon's assessment of John Dee's spiritual revelations, which came through through soothsaying. Through crystal ball gazing and through seances. Here we see Charlotte Fell Smith accepting the assessment of Casabon in reference to John Dee's religious sincerity. And so many people throw around phrases such as good Christian or sincere Christian without actually understanding what it means to be a Christian. Referring to Dee's crystal gazing which he had engaged in for six or seven years. Smith is indeed referring to the practice of sorcery and soothsaying. John Dee spent countless hours gazing into a crystal ball and imagining himself to be seeing visions and having conversations with angels. It is also clear in her biography that he held seances and other similar engagements. These things, as well as the divination John D. attempted through them, are forbidden to Christians in Scripture. You cannot practice them and be a good Christian. They're forbidden in places such as Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, Galatians chapter 5, Revelation chapter 9, and elsewhere. John D. was learned in Latin, and the Vulgate often expresses these things much more clearly in Latin than the King James Version does in English. So he must have been familiar with them. We would not consider John Dee to be a good Christian. Continuing with Charlotte Smith, it may well be here to remark that this voluminous book of mysteries or true and faithful relation a folio published in 1659, from which in the following pages there will be found many extracts, abounds in tedious and unintelligible pages of what Kosobin calls sermon-like stuff, interspersed with passages of extraordinary beauty. Some of the figures and parables, as well as the language used, are full of a rare poetic imagery, singularly free from any coarse or sensual symbolism, like jewels embedded in dull settings. Here and there a gem of loftiest religious thought shines and sparkles. There are descriptive touches of costume and appearance that possess considerable dramatic value. As the story is unfolded in a kind of spiritual drama, the sense of a gradual moving development, and the choice of a fitting vehicle in which to clothe it is striking. The dramatis personae, too, the spiritual creatures, who, as de believed, influence the destinies of man, become living and real, as of course they were to the seer. In many respects these actions were an exact counterpart of the dealings inaugurated by physical sciences two hundred and seventy five years later if we omit the close investigation for fraud casaubon's successor in dealing with the shunned and avoided subject of john dee was thomas smith fellow of magdalen college oxford who in 1707 wrote the first connected life of him in the book of the Lives of Learned Men? It was based upon some of these autobiographical papers, and out of a total of a hundred pages, gave fifty to letters already printed by Casaubon. So apparently, this was a meager effort. After this No sustained account of Dee's romantic career is to be found outside the pages of the biographical dictionaries and magazine articles or among writers upon necromancy, hermetic philosophy, and alchemy. Many of these decorate their collections with apocryphal marvels culled from the well-worn traditional stories of Dee and his companion Edward Kelly. Thus, throughout his lifetime and since, he has continued to run the gauntlet of criticism, old impostering juggler, fanatic, quack are mild terms. In the Biographia Britannica, he is called extremely credulous, extravagantly vain, and a most deluded enthusiast. Even the writer on D in the Dictionary of National Biography says his conferences with the angels are such a tissue of blasphemy and absurdity that they might suggest insanity. Many more such summary verdicts might be quoted, but these will suffice for the present. And all of this could be readily dismissed if it weren't for the fact that John Dee was actually a very influential man on not only Queen Elizabeth herself, but on many of the, but on or with many of the nobles of Britain. Here we may perceive why we chose this source for the material which we want to present. Because this writer rejected all the claims of treachery or insanity against John Dee. Therefore, once we see what the writer does admit, it will be easier to accept the admissions as truth. Because she's truly trying to defend him from his own lunacy and his own sin. It has been said that no life of D. exists, and yet the materials for such a life are so abundant that only a selection can be used here. In his private diary, for instance, if properly edited, would supply much supplementary, useful, and interesting historical information. It is the object of this work to present the facts of John D.'s life as calmly and impartially as possible and to let them speak for themselves. In the course of writing, many false assertions have disentangled themselves from truth, many doubts have been resolved, and a mass of information sees the light for the first time. The subject is, of course, hedged about with innumerable difficulties, but in spite of the temptations to stray into a 100 bypaths, an endeavor has been strictly made to do no more than throw a little dim light on the point where the path breaks off from the main road. If, at the end of the way, any who have persevered so far feel they have followed a magnetic and interesting personality, the labor expended will not have been in vain. With a word of apology to serious historical readers for the incorrigibly romantic tendency of much of the narrative, which, in spite of the Stern sentinel of a literary conscience would continually reassert itself. The story of our astrologer's strange life may now begin. Now Charlotte Fell Smith gets into the details of John Dee's early life, and we are only going to give a synopsis. John Dee was the son of Rowland D. He was born in London, according to the horoscope of his own drawing on July thirteenth, 1527. His mother was Jane, daughter of William Wilde. Various Welsh writers have assigned to D a a genealogical descent of the highest antiquity, and the pedigree which he drew up for himself in later life traces his family history from his grandfather, Bedo D to Roderick the Great, Prince of Wales. All authorities agree that Radnor was the county from whence Dee sprang. indeed the father, held an appointment at court as a gentleman-server to Henry VIII, but was very indifferently treated by the king. This may partly account for the persistence with which Dee exhibited before Queen Elizabeth his claims to preferment at her hands. To be in habitual attendance at court in those days, however, bred in men a great desire for place, and a courtier was but a mendicant, or a beggar, on a grand scale. So D, the son of a courtier, had an opportunity for education which many boys of the age certainly did not have. Here it is suggested that the fact that his father was a courtier before him sharpened his skills in that respect and charlotte smith says the boy john d was early bred in grammar learning and was inured to latin from his tender years Perhaps he was not much more than nine or ten when he was sent to Chelmsford, to the Chantry School founded there seven years before the great school at Winchester came into existence. And after describing Dee's wonderful mastery of Latin, Smith continues, In November 1542, Dee, being then fifteen years and four months old, left Chelmsford, to enter at St. John's College, Cambridge, where, as he tells us in his autobiography, he soon became a most assiduous student. In the years 1543, 44, and 45, quoting his autobiography, I was so vehemently bent to study, that for those years I did inviolably keep this order, only to sleep four hours every night to allow to meet and drink, and some refreshing after, two hours every day, and of the other 18 hours, all except the time of going to and being at divine service, was spent in my studies and learning. Early in 1546, he graduated a Bachelor of Arts from the St. John's College at the close of the same year, Trinity College was founded by Henry VIII and Dee was selected one of the original fellows. He was also appointed under reader in Greek to Trinity College. The principal Greek reader being Robert Pember. Here Smith describes a wonderful task Dee performed of the managing of the production of a stage presentation of the Irene or Peace of Aristophanes. D. evidently had an interest in theatre and English drama, which he did not pursue and later dismissed as boyish attempts and exploits scholastical. After this, Smith says, he turned to sterner studies, and became a skilful astronomer, taking thousands of observations very many to the hour and minute of heavenly influences and operations actual in this elemental portion of the world, the stars in the sky being considered a part of the world. These he afterwards published in various ephemerides, and an ephemeris is a table which displays the calculated positions of celestial objects at given intervals over a period of time. In May 1547, Dee made his first journey abroad to confer with learned men of the Dutch universities upon a science of mathematics, to which he had already begun to devote his serious attention. He spent several months in the Low Countries, formed close friendships with Gerard Mercator, Gemma Frisius, they are both well-known geographers, Johannes Caspar, Miricasis, the Orientalist Antonius Gogava, and he was actually a physician most famous for translating Greek music treatises and other philosophers of worldwide fame. Upon his return to Cambridge, he brought with him two great globes of Mercator's making and an astronomer's armillary ring and staff of brass, such as Frisius had newly devised and was in the habit of using. These he afterwards gave to the fellows and students of Trinity College. He cites a letter of acknowledgement from John Christopherson who was afterwards Bishop of Chichester. But upon search being made for the objects recently, through the kindness of the master, it appears they are not now to be found. Dee returned to Cambridge in the year 1548 to take his degree of Master of Arts, and soon after went abroad. And never after that was I any more a student in Cambridge, Dee said. Before he left, he obtained under seal of the Vice-Chancellor and Convocation in 1548, a testimonial to his learning and good conduct, which he proposed to take with him abroad. Many times did he prove it to be of some value. In Midsummer Term, 1548, he entered as a student at the University of Louvain, which had been founded more than a hundred years before in this quaint old Brabantian town of medieval ramparts and textile industries. At Louvain, D. continued his studies for two years, and here he soon acquired a reputation for learning quite beyond his years. It has been presumed that here he graduated as a doctor, to account for the title that has always been given him, and of course the author says that she actually investigated that, but no records had exist had existed to support that he was a doctor long after when he had passed middle life. And when his remarkable genius in every branch of science had carried him so far beyond the dull wit of the people who surrounded him that they could only explain his manifestations by the cry of sorcery and magic, Dee made a passionate appeal to the Queen, his constant patron and employer, to send two emissaries of her own choosing to his house at Mortlake, and bid them examine everything they could find that his character might be cleared from the damaging charges laid against him. He prepared for these two commissioners, to whose visit we shall revert in its proper place, an autobiographical document of the greatest value, which he calls the Compendious Rehearsal of John D his dutiful declaration and proof of the course and race of his studious life for the space of half a hundred years now by God's favor and help fully spent the original partly burned still exists in the cotton manuscripts in the Ashmolean libraries at Oxford it is from this narrative that the facts of his early life are ascertainable Perhaps we discern them through a faint mist of retrospective glorification, for which the strange streak of vanity, almost inseparable from attainments like these, was accountable. But there is every reason to rely upon the accuracy of the mathematician's story. Beyond the Seas, far and near, was a good opinion conceived of my studies, philosophical and mathematical, a quote from John Dee. People of all ranks began to flock to see this wonderful young man. He gives the names of those who came to Louvain a few hours' journey from Brussels, where the brilliant court of Charles V was assembled with evident pride. Now, Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor in the early years of the German Reformation. Charles died when John Dee was about 31 years old in... 1558. Italian and Spanish nobles, the Dukes of Mantua and Medina Celi, the Danish king's mathematician Matthias Hacus, and his physician, jo- Johannes Capito. Bohemian students all arrived to put his reputation to the test. A distinguished Englishman, Sir William Pickering, afterwards ambassador to France, came as his pupil to study astronomy by the light of Mercator's globes, the astrolabe and the astronomer's ring of brass that Frisius had invented. For his recreation, the teacher looked into the method of civil law and mastered easily the points of jurisprudence even those accounted very intricate and dark. It was at Louvain, no doubt, that his interest in the subject of alchemy became strengthened and fixed. Stories were rife of the famous alchemist, Henricus Cornelius Agrippa, who had died there in the service of Margaret of Austria only a dozen years or so before. Agrippa had been secretary to the Emperor Maximilian, had lived in France, London and Italy, and Louvain, no doubt, was bursting with his extraordinary feats of magic. The two years soon came to an end, and a couple of days after his twenty-third birthday, young John Dee left the Low Countries for Paris, where he arrived on July twentieth, 1550. His fame had preceded him, and within a few days, at the request of some English gentleman and for the honor of his country, he began a course of free public lectures or readings in Euclid, Mathematics, Physics, and Pythagoreanism, were the titles, where it was the title of the lectures in English at the College of Reims in Paris, a thing, he says, which had never been done before in any university in Christendom. His audience, most of them older than himself, was so large that the mathematical schools would not hold them, and many of the students were forced, in their eagerness, to climb up outside the windows, where, if they could not hear the lecturer, they could at least see him. He demonstrated upon every proposition and gave dictation and exposition. A greater astonishment was created, he says, than even at his Scarbeus mounting up to the top of Trinity Hall in Cambridge. The members, a reference to some of his play-acting or his directing of plays while he was in college. The members of the university in Paris, at the time numbered over 4,000 students, who came from every part of the known world. He had made many friends among the professors and graduates, friends of all estates and professions, several of whose name he gives among them the learned writers and theologians of the day orantius midsaldus petrus montarius Racanas, i'm sorry fernelius and francis silvius so we see that john dee was basically being treated with the same degree or with a close degree of celebrity to that with which with, with which erasmus and Roychlin and even Martin Luther had been treated. The fruit of these years spent in Louvain in Paris was that D afterwards maintained throughout his life a lively correspondence with professors and doctors in almost every university of note upon the continent. He names especially his correspondence in the universities of Orleans, Cologne, Heidelberg, Strasbourg, Verona, Padua, Ferrara, Bologna, Urbino, Rome, and many others, whose letters lay open for the inspection of the commissioners on that later visit already alluded to, where, later in his life, D. was defending himself before Elizabeth upon charges of sorcery. An offer was made to him to become a king's reader in mathematics in Paris, with a stipend of two hundred French crowns yearly, but he had made up his mind to return to England, and nothing would tempt him to stay. He received other proposals, promising enough, to enter the service of Babot de Rohan, and de Manluc, who was starting as a special ambassador to the great Turk. But his thoughts turned back to England, and thither in 1551, he bent his steps. The names mentioned in this last paragraph are obscure, but they do belong to noble French families. The de Rohans of this period were Counts and Viscounts of Rohan in Brittany. The last one, must refer to Jean de Manluc, a famous French diplomat of the period, who participated in an embassy of Francis I to the Ottoman Empire. Francis I, at this time, had allied himself with the Turks as a ploy in his wars against the Holy Roman Emperor Charles. It was a pretty treacherous move, if you are a, um, european nationalist of any sort you have to see that as treachery against christendom just as johann roichland was considered the second greatest scholar of his time in europe behind erasmus we see that john d had also built up credentials as a great scholar of course Reuchlin was dead about 30 years by this time or 25 at least as a brief review so that we understand the context which follows. Henry VIII was king of England until 1547. He lifted the restrictions on usury set in place by Edward I over 200 years before, and he asserted both the divine right of kings and kingly authority over the churches of England. Henry initiated the English Reformation, but not for any noble cause. Evidently, Jews were coming to England in his time but they were coming as Spanish or Portuguese merchants and therefore they could not practice their religion openly because Jews were not supposed to be in England he was succeeded by Edward VI who died at age 15 in 1553 after a disputation over the ascension of Lady Jane Grey Mary won the Catholic Bloody Mary became Queen, and things got tough for the Protestants. Here we shall continue with our author. In December 1551, he obtained through the offices of Mr. John Cheka, or afterwards Sir John Cheka, an introduction to Secretary Cecil and to King Edward VI. He had already written for and dedicated to the young king two books in manuscript, The Use of the Celestial Globe in 1550, and another book of The Clouds, the Sun, the Moon, and of the Other Planets in 1551. These, perhaps, had been sent to Checa, the king's tutor, in the hope that they might prove useful lesson books. The pleasing result of the dedication was an annual gift of a royal pension of a hundred crowns. This allowance was afterwards exchanged for the rectory of Upton-upon-Severn in Worcestershire, which D. found an extremely bad bargain. Smith later informs us that the rectory was worth about eighty pounds a year. To D's income, D then turned down an opportunity to be a lecturer on mathematical science at Oxford, and in 1553 produced, among other things, works on the, claw, the cause of floods and ebbs, which is evidently a book discussing the cause of the tides and the philosophical and political occasions and names of the heavenly Asterimes, both written at the request of Jane, Duchess of Northumberland, or Lady Jane Grey, who would be queen for nine days in 1553, and executed by Bloody Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII. Smith writes of John Dee's encounter with Queen Mary, when Mary Tudor, Succeeded her brother as queen in 1553, omitting any mention of Lady Jane Grey. Dee was invited to calculate her nativity. He began soon after to open up a correspondence with the Princess Elizabeth, Mary's sister. Mary was a Catholic, Elizabeth was a Protestant, and was his future patron who was then living at Woodstock, and he cast her horoscope also. Before long, he was arrested on the plea of an informant named George Ferries, who alleged that one of his children had been struck blind and another killed by Dee's magic. Ferries also declared that Dee was directing his enchantment enchantments against the Queen's life. Dee's lodgings in London were searched and sealed up, and he himself was sent to prison. He was examined before the Secretary of State, afterwards upon eighteen articles by the Privy Council, and at last brought into the Star Chamber for trial. There he was cleared of all suspicion of treason, and liberated by an Order in Council, August twenty ninth, 1555. But handed over to Bishop Bonner for examination in matters of religion, Bonner was apparently equally satisfied. D was certainly enjoined by him at John Philpot's examination on November nineteenth fifteen fifty five to put questions as a test of his orthodoxy. He quoted St. Cyprian to Philpot, who replied, "Master D." You are too young in divinity to teach me in matters of my faith, though you be more learned in other things. And that's actually a quote from Fox's Acts and Monuments, 1847. D deserves the 1847 edition. I'm sorry, Fox wrote it long before that. D. deserves well of all writers and students for time everlasting because of his most praiseworthy efforts to found a state national library of books and manuscripts with copies of foreign treasures wherever they might be. And yes, there's a purpose for me recounting this rather trite account, but it's important to our cause here. On January 15, 1556, he presented to Queen Mary a supplication for the recovery and preservation of ancient writers and monuments. Within a few years, he had seen the monasteries dissolved when the reign of Henry VIII dissolved all of the Catholic monasteries. And the priceless collections of these houses lamentably dispersed, some burned and others buried, he drew up a very remarkable address to the queen dwelling on a calamity of thus distributing the treasure of all antiquity and the everlasting seeds of continual excellency within this your grace's realm. Many precious jewels, he knows, have already utterly perished. But in time there may be saved and recovered the remnants of a store of theological and scientific writings, which are now being scattered up and down the kingdom, some in unlearned men's hands, some walled up or buried in the ground. D uses powerful arguments to enforce his plea, choosing such as would make the most direct appeal to both queen and people. She will build for herself a lasting name and monument. They will be able, all in common, to enjoy what is now only the privilege of a few scholars, and even these have to depend on the good will of private owners. He proposes first that a commission shall be appointed to inquire what valuable manuscripts exist that those reported on shall be borrowed on demand, a fair copy made, and if the owner will not relinquish it, the the original be returned. Secondly, he points out that the commission should get to work at once, lest some owners, hearing of it, should hide or convey away their treasures. And so, he pithily adds... Prove by a certain token that they are not sincere lovers of good learning because they will not share them with others. The expenses of the commission and of the copying, etc., he proposed should be borne by the Lord Cardinal and the Synod of the province of Canterbury, who should also be charged to oversee the manuscripts and books collected until a library, at in all points, is made ready for their reception. Finally, D suggests that to him be committed the procuring of copies of many famous manuscript volumes, to be found in the great libraries abroad, the Vatican Library at Rome, Saint Mark's at Venice, and in Boulogne, Florence, Vienna, etc. He offers to set work, set to work to obtain these. The expenses only of transcription and carriage to England to be charged to the state. As to printed books, they are to be gotten in wonderful abundance. In this generous offer of his life to be spent in transcribing crabbed manuscripts, we cannot see the restless genius of John Dee long satisfied, but at any rate he proved himself not seeking for private gain. It is needless to say that nothing came of Dee's very disinterested proposition, so he became the more industrious in collecting a library of his own, which soon consisted of more than 4,000 volumes, which were always at the disposal of the friends who often came to see him. They came also for another reason. And we recount that story to show the emphasis that John Dee had placed on collecting every sort of book he could get his hands on. Astrology was a very essential part of astronomy in the 16th century, and the belief in the controlling power of the stars over human destinies is almost as old as man himself. The relative positions of the planets in the firmament, their situations amongst the constellations, at the hour of a man's birth, were considered by the ancients to be dominant factors and influences throughout his whole life. It is not too much to say that a civilization I'm sorry, that a belief in the truth of horoscopes, cast by a skilled calculator, still survives in our Western civilization as well as in the East. Medical science today pays its due respect to astrology in the sign little altered from the astrological figure for Jupiter, with which all prescriptions are still headed. "'When Elizabeth mounted with firm steps "'the throne that her unhappy sister, Bloody Mary, "'had found so precarious and uneasy a heritage, "'she butchered half the Protestants in the country, "'Dee was very quickly sought for a court. "'His first commission was entirely sui generis, "'or one of a kind. "'He was commanded by Robert Dudley, to name an auspicious day for the coronation, and his astrological calculations thereupon seem to have impressed the Queen and all her courtiers. Whether or not we believe in the future auguries of such a combination of influences as presided over the selection of the 14th of January, 1559, for the day of crowning Elizabeth in Westminster Abbey, we must acknowledge that these choice of a date was succeeded by benign and happy destinies. He was then living in London. We do not know where his lodging was, but several of the books belonging to his library have come down to us with his autograph. And the dates of the years, 1557, 55, 57, and 1558. Elizabeth sent for him soon after her ascension and was invited to him, I'm sorry, and invited him to her service at Whitehall with all fair promises. He was introduced by Dudley, then and long afterwards her first favorite, so he was likely to stand well. Where my brother has given him a crown, she said to Dudley, or to D's other sponsor, the Earl of Pembroke. I will give him a noble. This was the first of innumerable vague promises made, but it was long indeed before any real and tangible gift was conferred on the astrologer, although he was continually busied about one thing and another at the fancy of the queen. At this point, Charlotte Fell Smith recalls a few anecdotes, reflecting the superstition of the time, and affirming with reliance—I'm sorry, affirming the reliance which Elizabeth I had upon John Dee as a close adviser, which seems to be much more emotional than practical. She explains that it was very likely for that reason that Dee had many promises of appointments but nothing tangible was forthcoming because Elizabeth didn't really want John Dee off doing something else. She wanted him close at hand. After this she continues. Dee is called a Bachelor of Divinity by Fox, John Fox, in 1555. And as a matter of fact he does both in 1558 and in 1564, add the letters, S.D.T., I guess, at the time, to his name in his printed works, including the Monus Hieroglyphica of 1564, and that work cites the Kabbalah very frequently. This degree also was not from Cambridge, meaning his... Doctor of Divinity, D. had already told us that he was no longer a student at Cambridge after he had received his Master of the Arts. At last he grew tired of waiting for an appointment, and a certain restlessness in his character, not incompatible with the long patience of the true follower of science, drove him again abroad. His intention was to arrange for printing books already prepared in manuscript, to search out among out-of-the-way bookmongers, out-of-the-way bookmongers and book-lovers in high-walled German towns, for rare treasures wherewith to enrich his native country was another magnet that drew his feet. In February 1563, after he had been thus employed for more than a year, he wrote from the Sign of the Golden Angel in Antwerp to Cecil to ask if he was expected to return to England, or if he might remain to oversee the printing of his books and continue his researches among Dutch books and scholars. He had intended, he says, to return before Easter, but this was now impossible owing to printer's delays, when we remember that a hundred years had barely elapsed since the first metal types had been cast and used in a hand press. It is not wonderful that Dee's treatise, with its hieroglyphic and Kabbalistic signs, took long to print. He announces in the letter to Cecil, a great bargain he has picked up, a work for which many a learned man has long sought and daily yet does seek upon cipher writing, or what which was Stegan Steganographia, I'm sorry, Steganographia by the famous abbot Trithemius of Wurzburg. It is the earliest elaborate treatise upon shorthand and cipher, a subject in which Cecil was particularly interested. It was then in manuscript, first printed in frankfort, sixteen o six at this time. In the 1560s, it was only in manuscript. Dee continues that he knows his correspondent will be well acquainted with the name of the book, for the author mentions it in his epistles and in both the editions of his polygraphia. He urges its claims upon the future Lord Treasurer. Already a statesman of ripe experience, referring to Cecil, in the following words, a book for your honor, or a prince, so meet, so needful, and commodious, as in human knowledge, none can be meter or more behoveful. Of this book, either as I now have it, or hereafter shall have it, fully whole and perfect, if it please you to accept my present, I give to your honor as the most precious jewel that I have yet of other men's travails recovered. Now, according to very recent sources, Johann Trithemius' Steganographia, which D extols so highly here, appeared to be a book concerning black magic and the occult, and things such as the conjuring of angels to span space and communicate with heaven. But, under the surface... It was evidently written in complex cipher as an exercise in cryptography. The book was banned by the church because of the appearance of its content, and both John Dee and his acquaintance, Henricus Cornelius Agrippa, are remembered as proponents of its apparently occult content. I'm sorry, not his acquaintance, but his predecessor in the field of alchemy. They were both remembered as proponents of the apparently occult content of the steganographia. Since John Dee left writings behind where he himself had claimed to communicate with angels, it is doubtful in my observation that he saw the book merely as an exercise in cryptography. The book being in manuscript and not in print, D copied half of it by hand and, as he reported, a Hungarian nobleman in Antwerp offered to copy the other half so long as D remained in Antwerp. The sign of the golden angel appears to be a reference to a 16th century guild hall in Antwerp located at the Grody Market, a market surrounded by guild halls and the Antwerp City Hall. In the 16th century, the city became a noted safe haven for crypto-Jews who were fleeing Spain and Portugal and settled, some of them, in Antwerp. We cannot demonstrate from our biographer just when John Dee picked up the Kabbalah, but we do hope to discuss that subject later. However, it is at this point that Charlotte Fell Smith begins to refer to Dee's kabbalistic signs, which were indeed made after the manner of the Kabbalah. This anecdote we have just read certainly shows the lengths which Dee would go to, to acquire and study books of secrets and ciphers and other mystical writings. After finishing a book of his own in 1564, Monus Hieroglyphica, D dedicated it and presented it to the emperor Maximilian I. This is significant, because that book has explicit mention of the Kabbalah and presents explicit argument for the mathematical basis of the Kabbalah. For that we shall make a greater presentation in part two of this presentation on John Dee. Shortly after presenting his book to Maximilian, Dee expressed disappointment that many university graduates of high degree and other gentlemen dispraised it, meaning the monus hieroglyphica, dispraised it because they understood it not. But, speaking of Elizabeth, Her Majesty graciously defended my credit in my absence beyond the seas." that certainly seems to permit an inference that the academics introduced these, to D's these work in the Monas Hieroglyphica were not yet familiar with Kabbalistic philosophy. That's why they didn't understand it. John Dee returned to England in June of that year, upon which Smith describes more of Elizabeth's enamorment with Dee. And Elizabeth was very interested in the Monus Hieroglyphica. And John Dee, she had begged him, helped her to study the book and explained it to her. So John Dee, when he returned to England after 1564 introduced Elizabeth I to the Kabbalah. That's exactly what he did through his book, The Monus Hieroglyphica. From that point, our author continues, Elizabeth was always Dee's very good friend, and she made a grant to him on December 8, 1564, of the deanery of Gloucester, then void, but other counsels prevailed, and it was soon bestowed upon some other man, no doubt the appointment would have given great offence for the popular eye was already beginning to see d to see in d no highly equipped mathematician, geographer, and astronomer, but a conjurer and magician of doubtful reputation in fact, in the current jargon. One who had dealings with the devil. And we can only guess if that was over John D.'s introduction of the Kabbalah to the English, to the court of England and to Queen Elizabeth and the noblemen of England. What there had been at this time to excite these suspicions beyond the fact that D was always ready to expound a comet or an eclipse or to cast a horoscope or explain that the queen would not immediately expire because a wax doll with a stiletto in its heart was found under a tree, it is hard to say. But that these rumors were extremely persistent is seen by these astrologer's defense of himself in the very fruitful preface which he, as the first mathematician of the day, was asked to write to Henry Billingsley's First English Translation of Euclid's Elements in February 1570. And Charlotte Smith describes this preface and uses her description as a defense of Dee's reputation, which she obviously seeks to rehabilitate. But that, that preface also, from what we understand, mentions the Kabbalah. It seems that Charlotte... Fell Smith simply didn't realize the full impact of the references to the Kabbalah in John Dee's actual writing. If indeed she read his non-biographical writing, we should believe that she did. I mean, she was a thorough biographer, so we would believe that she certainly, certainly should have. Here we are going to skip ahead to 1571, where we have the next mention of alchemy in Smith's biography in relation to D. This topic had not arisen since D was at Levain nearly twenty years earlier. This is at a time where he is past the age of forty and settled into a house on the Thames River near London. D. fell ill a short time later, where Elizabeth herself sent physicians and saw that while he was ill, his needs were fulfilled. And our author continues, The Queen seems to have felt a special obligation to look after him, as she had sent him on some mission of her own, which probably we shall not be far wrong in thinking, connected with D.'s alchemistic experiments.' Every court in Europe at this time had astrologers and alchemists in its employ, and the Queen and Lord Treasurer Burley were as anxious as D that he should really attain the ever elusive secret of transmutation. D to turn one element into another. Dee had, of course, carried the Queen's passport for himself and a couple of servants with horses and had had obtained permits through foreign ambassadors in London to travel freely through various countries. And our purpose there was to show that alchemists and astrologers were popular in every court in in, in Britain and Europe at this time. Moving ahead to the year 1581, a new phase of his character is now forced upon us. He has appeared hitherto as a man of learning, astronomer and mathematician, a brilliant lecturer and demonstrator, diligent in probing the chemical and alchemical Secrets of which his vast reading, his foreign correspondence, and his unique library gave him cognizance. Interested in geographical discovery and history, a bibliographical and mathematical writer, his genuine contributions to science to science had been considerable. He had written upon navigation and history, logic, travel, geometry, astrology, heraldry, genealogy, and many other subjects. He had essayed to found a national library, and was contemplating a great work upon the reformation of the calendar. But these purely legitimate efforts of his genius were discounted in the eyes of his contemporaries by the absurd suspicions with which his name had been associated ever since his college days. After his arrest and trial by Bonner, He never really succeeded in shaking off this savor of something magical. The popular idea of D in league with evil powers was, of course, the natural result of ignorance and dull understanding. To a public reared in superstition, untrained in reasoning, unacquainted with the simple laws of gravitation, The power to raise heavenly bodies in the air at will. To see pictures in a simple crystal globe, or converse with projections of the air. To forecast a man's life by geometric or planetary calculations, and to discern the influence of one chemical or mineral substance upon another, seemed diabolically clever, and quite beyond human agency. Even to study nature and her secrets was to lay oneself open to the suspicion of being a magician." We must remember that in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, it was thought necessary to pass an act of Parliament decreeing that all who practiced sorcery causing death should suffer death. If only injury was caused, imprisonment and the pillory should be the punishment. Any conjuration of an evil spirit was to be punished by death as a felon, WITHOUT BENEFIT OF CLERGY OR SANCTUARY, ANY DISCOVERY OF HIDDEN TREASURE BY MAGICAL MEANS WAS PUNISHABLE BY DEATH FOR A SECOND OFFENSE. BUT IF MAGIC WAS TOTTERING ON ITS THRONE, THE REIGN OF ALCHEMY WAS STILL UNCONTESTED. BELIEF IN IT WAS UNIVERSAL. Its great votaries in the past were of all nations. St. Dunstan of Gloucesterbury, Roger Bacon, Raymond Lully, or Raymond Lull, or Raimundo Lull, the Majorcan missionary to the Muslims and probable crypto-Jew, Canon George Ripley of Bridlington, Albertus Magnus, Cornelius Agrippa, Arnold de Villanova, and Paracelsus, all their writings, and hundreds of others, Dee had in his library and constantly upon his tongue. Alchemy was not only a science, it was a religion and a romance. It was even then enduring the birth and sickly infancy of modern chemistry, and the alchemist's long search for the secrets of making gold has been called one of its crises long after this it was still an article of faith and such a man as robert boyle did not deny we cannot forget that even that great chemist sir humphrey davy reverenced the possibility and refused to say that the alchemist's belief in the power to make gold was erroneous How unlike Dante's keen irony of the dark and groping men who seek for peltro, or tin, whitened with mercury. But alchemy was bursting with many other secrets beyond the manufacture of gold. The spiritual element abounding in all minerals, and the symbolism underlying every actual substance, were deeply embedded in it. It was a science of ideals, it ever led its followers on to scale illimitable heights of knowledge, for in order to surpass all material and rational nature, and attain the crowning end, did not God delegate his own powers to the sage. So the art of healing was thought the noblest, the most godlike task, and no means of attaining hermetic wisdom were untried. The psychical world became every bit as real to these religious mystics as the physical and rational, which they understood so vaguely. Even the strange shapes which escaped from the retorts of the old alchemists were known to them as souls. Their successors called them spirits. Paracelsus named them as Mercury. And it was left to his pupil Van Helmont, the true founder of all modern chemistry, to give the name of gas. It is easy to see how John Dee, the astrologer, grew into close touch with those psychic phenomena, which, though they have become extremely familiar to us, as yet continued to baffle our most scientific researchers. When he first became conscious of his own psychic powers, and how far he himself was mediumistic, is harder to discern. It is on May twenty-fifth, 1581, that he makes in his diary the momentous entry, I had sight in crystallo offered me, and I saw. We may take it that he saw through a medium, for he never afterwards seems to have been able to scry without one. Perhaps his first crystal had then been given him, although, as we have seen, he already owned several curious mirrors, one said to have have been of Mexican obsidian, such as was used for toilet purposes by that ancient race. He had made a study of optics, and in his catalogue of the manuscripts of his library are many famous writings on the spectrum, perspective and burning glasses, etc We have a um we have a few comments here first where um where Charlotte fellsmith says that it was easy to see how D grew into close touch with those psychic phenomena which though they have become extremely familiar to us, yet continue to baffle our most scientific researches. It seems, on the surface, that she herself is an occultist, or leans towards the occult, because to many people, even though they may understand the names of these things and what they refer to, these psychic phenomena are not familiar. Not some of these things being this dis- be described here, such as actually communicating with angels in visions in a crystal ball, and we will see more of that shortly. So, in this one place, Charlotte Fell Smith seems to out herself as an occultist, and perhaps that's why she's so positive about John D's image or or what she believes his image should be. This reference to Mexican obsidian to us connects John D to Jewish merchants. I mean that's the only way at this time that you could get your hands on such a thing. I just couldn't let that go without commenting on it. The author then gives an, an account of many of the strange incidents which supposedly occurred at the D household. What is evident is that John Dee was continually suspected of sorcery, witchcraft, and worse, by his countrymen, and that his curiosity and lack of Christian boundaries gave him no limits as to where he would search for elusive information. In 1583, another alchemist Albert, or Albrecht Lasky, had come to England and became acquainted with John Dee. Lasky would later convince Dee to travel to Poland. Many people to this day are convinced that Dee actually went to Poland as a spy for the English crown. And we may mention that further in the next part of the series. After describing Albert, or Adalbert Lasky, Count Palatine of Siratia, a Polish prince, then about to arrive on a visit to the queen, who had wished to make Dee's acquaintance to see his library and discuss magic, of which he had made a study, our author says. D first saw Lasky on May 13th at half past seven in the evening in the Earl of Leicester's apartments at the court at Greenwich, when he was introduced by Leicester himself. Five days after meeting Lasky, came to me at Mortlake with only two men, the words of D. He came at afternoon and tarried supper until after sunset. Near a month elapsed before his next visit, when he made a sort of royal progress down the Thames from Oxford to Mortlake, which was the name of John Dee's home. Upon this and another visit of Lasky with his entourage to the home of John Dee, Dee had complained that his funds were exhausted with the entertainments. At that point, Elizabeth sent him a large sum of gold so that he could afford to entertain Lasky. And this circumstance seems to support the contentions that D later accompanied Lasky to Poland as a spy, rather than out of intellectual curiosity. But there is more to the story. At this time D was spending countless hours crystal-gazing, and wrote of the spirits he encountered, or sometimes he called them angels. And... This is a little bit surreal, but that is why we are recounting it. And this is long before LSD or magic mushrooms. In the intervals between these visits of the prince, the spirits had been consulted about Lasky's prospects. They had at once interested themselves in him, and Madimi, one of the most fascinating of these psychical projections... Medini evidently being the name of the spirit, or some demon, or whatever D was looking at and communicating with, had vouchsafed some kind of genealogical information, connecting him with the Lacy's and Richard, Duke of York. She was the first of the female angels who appeared to D. Dee. Dee thought they were angels. "'as it seemed in answer to his arguments reproving Trithemius, "'who had it asserted that no good spirits ever took the shape of women. Medini, who suddenly appeared on May 28th, "'was like a pretty girl of seven or nine years, "'attired in a gown of say, changeable green and red with a train. "'Her hair was rolled up before and hanging down very long behind she came into the study and played by herself she seemed to go in and out behind my books the books seemed to give place sufficiently one heap with the other while she passed between them she announced that her elder sister would come presently and correct d s pronunciation of her name my sister is not so short as you make her Esamele. Not as samely, Medimi was very clever and accomplished. An accomplished little fairy, she learned Greek, Arabic, and Syrian on purpose to be useful to D. On June fourteenth, D asked the spirit Galva or Finis, another of D's angel demons, what she had to say about the polandish lord albertus lasky the reply came ask me these things tomorrow but when the next ga- day came kelly the seer who was a partner and fellow of john d spent all that afternoon almost in angling he was fishing right when i was very desirous to have had his company and helping hand in this action So at the next sitting Galva administers to Kelly, Galva being the spirit demon, a sharply pointed reproof. You, sir, were best to hunt and fish after Verity. D adds that she spoke so to E.K., meaning Kelly, because he spent too much time in fishing and angling. Then he asked if Lasky should return to Poland in August if his relation with the prince should bring him credit, and how should he use himself therein to God's liking, his country's honor and his own credit. Galva replied oracularly, He shall want no direction in anything he desires. Whom God has armed, no man can prevail against. On June 19th, he asked if it would be best for the prince to take the first opportunity of going homeward. It shall be answered soon, replied Galva, the spirit demon. May he be present at the action, he asked. Those that are of this house are not to be denied the banquets therein, was the reply. May I request you to cause some sensible apparition to appear to him? to comfort him and establish his mind more abundantly in the godly intent of god his service if he follows us the demon answers let him be governed by us but whatsoever is of flesh is not of us D perceives, you perceive how he understands of the Lord Treasurer, his grudge against him, and perhaps some others also are of malicious nature. What danger may follow hereof, or encumbrance? And the demon answers, the sum of his life is already appointed. One jot cannot be diminished, but he that is almighty can augment at his pleasure. Let him rejoice in poverty, he be sorry for his enemies, and do the works of justice. Then the cloud of invisibility, a drop scene between the acts, came over Galva and she disappeared. So John D is evidently following the Kabbalah and obeying the works of embodied demons. And he's also meddling with disembodied demons. Next day, Lasky was present at the action. An angel named Juban Ladak appeared and said he was appointed the prince's good governor or angel. And evidently this is the apparition which John D had asked of Galva the demon, the keeper and defender of this man present, referring to Lasky. He bade him look to the steps of his youth, measure the length of his body, live better, and see himself inwardly, Excellent advice, which might have been continued, had not a man named Tanfield, attached to the prince, arrived suddenly at Mortlake, with a message from the court, and, contrary to all good manners, burst into the study. Lasky had gone out another way through the oratory to meet him. The angel was annoyed, and prophesied rather unkindly, that in five months the rash interpreter should be devoured by fishes of the sea. Was he drowned then, or ever? The author asking a rhetorical question which wasn't answered. Then the thread was resumed. What do you seek after? Do you hunt after the swiftness of the winds? Or are you imagining a form under the clouds? Or go ye forth to hear the braying of an ass, which passes away with the swiftness of the air? Seek for true wisdom. For it beholds the highest and appears under the lowest. Then Lasky's guardian angel becomes extremely practical and interesting. Cecil hated him to the heart and desired he were gone hence. Many others do privily sting at him, many of the British or English court officials. Dee endeavors to keep him to the point. For his return, what is your advice? perhaps he wants necessary provision and money. And the demon says, or I'm sorry, the angel says, he shall be helped, perhaps miraculously, let him go, so soon as he can, conveniently. And D says, I say again, perhaps he wants money, but the treasures of the Lord are not sent to them who he favors." the demon answers. His help shall be strange. The queen loves him faithfully, and has fallen out with Cecil about him. Leicester flatters him. His doings are looked into narrowly. But I do always inwardly direct him. I will minister such comfort to him as shall be necessary in the midst of all his doings. Mingled with these sayings were some prophetical utterances about Lasky overcoming the Saracens and Panines with a bloody cross shown in his hand, and of course at this time Poland was fighting wars against the Turks, (coughs) and about D's passing to his country and aiding him to establish his kingdom. Then, the familiar spirit sank through the table like a spark of fire, seeming to make haste to his charge- I mean the Lord Lasky, the Polish prince, on Wednesday, the twenty sixth Lasky again being present, the good angel ill, according to John D appeared in a with a besom in his hand. The prince's pedigree was then barely begun, but on june twenty ninth the clever little. Madimi, the supposedly female demon promised to finish the book exactly as D would have written it. It was no matter where the book was left, she told him, locked up or lying about. Your locks are no hindrance to us. You have eased my heart of a thousand pound weight, ejaculated D fervently. Now I shall have leisure to follow my suit and do all of Mr. Gilbert's business. We cannot present all of the hardly believable, soothsaying episodes which our author has reproduced from John Dee's own biographical notes. However, John Dee, in spite of his critics, had many influential friends in Elizabeth and her court and the nobles of London, and this is the spell they were under. One of those friends is mentioned here in this last quote from John Dee, which refers to Adrian Gilbert, brother of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, half-brother of Sir Walter Raleigh, and cousin of Sir Richard Grenville, all who were prominent men in the reigns of Elizabeth I and the famous King James. There is a lot of other information we may have included here. But we would have to carry this on for months, from which we shall refrain. Rather, our objective was to supply a background of John Dee sufficient enough to characterize the presumably great English scholar's fascination with all things esoteric, and how he may have helped to foster that fascination among his friends, his contacts, his students, and his peers. Queen Elizabeth I, and much of the English nobility, were certainly enamored in spite of the fact that many of his countrymen remained suspect. This all fits into our assertion that men such as Johann Reuschland and John Dee paved the way for Jewish Freemasonry and Illuminism by popularizing the Kabbalah, when we return, we will discuss certain aspects of John Dee's visits to Poland and Prague, and, among other things, discuss his familiarity with the work of other Kabbalists, or Kabbalists, such as reuchlin and his connections and references to the Kabbalah, which are found explicitly in his books. The ultimate point in all of this is that Europe's academics accepted the Kabbalah. Then ultimately, they had to accept the Jewish rabbis as its utmost authorities. Accepting the rabbis and the Kabbalah, we can understand how Freemasonry, built on Jewish tradition, fable, and ritual, could have attracted so many Christians in the subsequent centuries. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Good night.